Well, even just one week out of our study feels like a long time. Two weeks ago, we were last in Ephesians, and then we looked at the bond of peace, picking up that last phrase at the end of verse 3, and considering what is its nature. You remember the bond of peace is not an aspiration that Paul sets out before us to which we should aspire. The bond of peace is not something that we aspire to attain. It is a reality. It's in place. By virtue of our common salvation in Christ, every single one of us is connected. There is a bond of peace between us that is unbreakable. And as we prized open that bond of peace and considered its very nature, its essence, we saw that it was determined by the ministry of the Trinity amongst us. So the bond of peace that unites every single believer is one that follows the ministry of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit And if anything, the exhortation is simply to acknowledge this bond. It is a reality. It is in place. The second Christ saves you, he establishes the bond of peace with other believers. Our responsibility is simply to acknowledge it and to live in light of it. And so Paul is, again, you see, encouraging the Christians to practically live out the unity that the gospel brings. From there into verse 7 and following, Paul now draws attention to what are our differences. With the bond of peace established, having been discussed, He moves on to a new thought in verse 7, specifically drawing attention to the differences between us. The differences, not so much in terms of our personalities, the way in which we're wired, what our desires are, our preferences are, but the differences that exist amongst God's people as it relates to our gifts. Paul teaches the Christians in Ephesus and us this evening that we all have different gifts as given by God. We have different measures of those different gifts, but they are an outworking of Christ's victory in the gospel. That those gifts were accomplished through his suffering And that those gifts should by no means be something that brings disunity amongst us. But similar to the bond of peace, the differences in our gifting should be something that unites us. Just think about that. That is the principal argument that Paul makes here. The differences in our gifts should be a reality that you 
unites us, never provoking us to jealousy, bitterness, discontent, always leading us on in yet further expressions of our unity. Now, how is that so? Because as we acknowledge the way in which God has gifted each one of us differently, we grow in our awareness of how we need one another. We need one another if we are to be the church. So, we'll walk through Paul's argument and consider the various aspects of these gifts as an exhortation that we would celebrate them, we would enjoy them, and be further united together because of them. Beginning with the reality, Paul reminds us of our need for one another. He says in verse 7, but grace, you see Paul is changing his tact with that, with that adversative comment, but moving from the bond of peace, which is common to now the differences, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What Paul teaches here is not even simply that each one of us has received a gift. That is true. If you are a Christian, you cannot say, I don't have a gift with which to serve the church. That's an unbiblical thought. If you are a Christian, God has gifted you in some way so as to serve the church. That's straight from Ephesians chapter 4. God has gifted his children with gifts. Paul draws attention to that, but specifically noting that our gifts are different. And we'll see even next week just a few of those different gifts. What Paul says here in verse 7 is that the gifts we have received, different as they are, have also been received in different measure. Look again at verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He distributes these gifts to his people in differing amounts. Different gifts amongst the children of God by different amounts. And so you find in any local church, there are those who are particularly gifted, just by way of example, in hospitality. There are those who are particularly gifted in administration. There are those who have been gifted in teaching. Others have been gifted in evangelism. Some have been gifted in counseling and discipleship. Some have been gifted in very practical means of service. Some have been gifted in leadership. Some have been gifted in encouragement. The list goes on and on, and Scripture teaches us about these gifts here and elsewhere, Romans 12. And Paul says, not only have the gifts been given according to God's wisdom such that you have a gift that is different from your neighbor in the church, but even in different measures, there are some who are particularly gifted at hospitality, some who are particularly gifted in administration, 
particularly gifted in teaching and some who are not as gifted because that is an expression of God's wisdom. He has given you these gifts according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't serve the church in an area in which you have not been particularly gifted. Very practically, it does not mean this truth about different gifts in different measure, that doesn't mean that you can't serve the church in an area that you don't feel particularly gifted. I think often about one superior I had in the military, and he gave me a very straightforward talking when I first started to work under him, and he said, you are to be a yes man. Which means when I ask you to do something, your answer is yes, and you figure out later how to do it. And I think that's a wonderful principle by which you should approach your membership to the church. <laughs> it doesn't mean that if you don't have in abundance the gift of service, that you don't stack the chairs. You can still serve in those areas but it does mean that amongst us, there will be those who excel in different ways. Again, very practically, I think it's important for you to know the ways in which God has gifted you. It is part and parcel of your membership to the church that you would try to figure out with the help of others the way in which God has gifted you to serve the body. You don't know necessarily until you've tried. Again, you are willing, you come to church with a willing attitude and you say yes when there's opportunities to serve in different ways and then you rely on those around you to be honest and loving, sometimes to say your efforts aren't necessarily blessing us right now. Other times to say you are wonderfully gifted in this way you start to learn how it is God has gifted you. And if we all come with that attitude and we're all on this process of learning each other's gifts, the outworking of it is that we grow in our awareness of just how wonderful is God's design in the church. We grow in our awareness of the reality that there is not one single person here who is capable of doing everything that the local church ought to be doing. There is not one single person in Christ belonging to the local church whom God has given all of the gifts sufficient enough to do the work of all the ministries that happen. That is his design. That is intentional. He holds back certain gifts from you. And he gives you other gifts. And that measuring, that distribution is different to how he has gifted the person beside you. That's his wonderful design so that as we come together and as we are aware of this theology, we start to grow in our love and our appreciation for God's wonderful design that is the local church. We learn how much we need one another. We learn with all humility that none of us are equipped to do everything. And the practical outworking of this realization 
is that we start to depend upon one another. As we grow in our awareness of where we're lacking, of where other people have been especially gifted, we then start to joyfully and willingly depend upon one another. I think we know this principle outside of the church, and I trust we already exercise it there. I am not gifted to be very handy around the home. I can't put neat holes in a wall, I just put big holes in the wall. I can't fix my car. People assume all the time that because I have an engineering background, that means I'm a car mechanic. It doesn't mean that. I don't know how to fix my car. Now I'll try. I'll give it an effort, a shot. I quickly realize that I'm out of my depth. And so that's when I reach for my favorite power tool, my mobile phone. <laughs> and I call Bob, or I call Bruce, or I call Pete, or really just any of many guys in the church. And I have no jealousy. I have no bitterness. I say, I'm out of my depth, and I need your gifting. Would you come and help me? And, in my experience, people are blessed to be asked. Please understand that. As you exercise dependence on others, you are not being a burden to them. People are blessed to be asked. If we know that principle outside of the church, if we recognize outside of the church where somebody has a particular skill set that we don't have and we'll readily lean upon them, how much more ought that to be the way in which we conduct ourselves amongst the people of God? Coming here on a Sunday with an awareness of the theology given in Ephesians chapter 4 that no one person has it all. No one person is gifted so as to fulfill all of the ministries of the church, but God in His wisdom has given different gifts and in different measure so that we all depend upon one another. And as we serve, we come to recognize wherein our gifting lies and where it doesn't lie. And practically, we are eager to exercise dependence upon one another. We don't hesitate. We don't allow another person's gifting to create bitterness or jealousy in our hearts, but we are ready to celebrate the way in which God has wired them. We're ready to celebrate God's wisdom in the design of the local church and see that He intends for us to be living our lives in dependence upon one another. And as we do that, and only as we do that, will the church be the church. God designs for the church to function in this way so as to promote our unity. So if we fail to acknowledge the particular way in which God has gifted one another, we will not be as unified as His Word intends for us to be. But it is when we look around and we celebrate one another's gifts and are ready to exercise our dependence upon one another, 
that we attain to new levels of unity in the gospel. Our unity is enhanced by our differences. You see, the wonder of God's design, it is not simply the bond of peace that brings us together, though that is certainly true. It is also our differences that bring us together. That is God's design for the church. We have different giftings in different measure, and so we need one another. Now from there, Paul goes on in his argument, reminding us not simply of our need of one another, but of our common experience of saving grace. Verse 8, Paul says, Therefore, in light of the truth that he's just given in verse 7, verse 8, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Paul is quoting here from Psalm 68, and it would serve us well to turn there briefly so as to see the context from which he's drawing. Turn with me back to the Psalter and specifically Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a victory psalm that praises God as the one who fights on behalf of Israel. It begins, God shall arise, verse 1, his enemies shall be scattered, those who hate him shall flee before him. Interestingly, all the way back in the book of Numbers and chapter 10, we see this psalm being quoted at the beginning of each day as the Israelites marched through the wilderness. They would move forward with the tabernacle in their midst and they would quote this psalm. It was an invocation, a prayer that God indeed would fight for them. May God arise and may our enemies be scattered before us because God fights. Verse 4, sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exalt before him. The psalm goes on not only to anticipate victory, but to celebrate it. Verse 19, blessed be the Lord who daily bears up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. 24, your procession is seen, O God. The procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. Summon your power, O God, 28, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. It's a victory psalm that anticipates God fighting for the Israelites against their enemies. And in verse 18, we find the verse that Paul quotes in Ephesians 4. Psalm 68, verse 18, you ascended on high leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. And the picture is that God, as the conquering hero, returns from battle and men honor him. Men praise him. How? By giving gifts to him. 
They want to acknowledge how mighty a warrior he has been on their behalf by giving gifts to him. That's the verse that Paul quotes. I wonder if you notice how it differs ever so subtly and yet so profoundly as Paul picks up this verse and quotes it in his letter to the Ephesians. What Paul does is he quotes Psalm 68 verse 18. He brings into view the whole narrative theology of the psalm. God going out, fighting the battle, returning as the conquering hero. All of that is intended to be in view. But he changes one small detail of the verse. In Psalm 68, the men give to God gifts. It is the appropriate response to honor the returning hero. In Ephesians 4, Christ gives to men gifts. You see the subtle change there. Ephesians 4 verse 8. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men. Paul is not misquoting the psalm. He didn't make a mistake. He didn't forget the exact details of that verse. He intentionally with all apostolic authority, changes the sense the image created not to the conquering hero receiving gifts, but to giving gifts. And in that subtle, ever so slight, and yet profound change, Paul opens up again the glory of the gospel as God gives gifts to us as an expression of His grace. Consider it. The captives in verse 8 are us. We were enslaved to bondage, to sin. We could not do otherwise. We didn't desire to honor God, nor were we able to because we were enslaved to our sin. We are the captives that he has set free. With that being said, we have nothing to give him. Christ comes back, the conquering hero. We want to honor him. We have nothing to give. I wonder if you believe that. You have nothing to give him. But what he has already given to you. And so when Paul quotes from Psalm 68, you can only imagine the joy abounding in his heart as he changes the sense of the verse and changes the entire picture created. Christ returns the conquering hero, triumphant over sin and death, bringing with him all those whom he has set free. And he gives to them gifts. And as an expression of his victory, Christ gives to us gifts. It is so important for us to grasp that the gifts by which we serve the church are an expression of the grace of the gospel. The particular facet of the gospel narrative that is in view in this verse is Christ's ascension. He lived a perfect life amongst us. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead and he ascended on high 
And at that point, he distributed gifts to men. And as we think about his ascension and indeed the whole gospel narrative, we understand that every single gift practiced in the church is simply a bearing witness to the victory that Christ accomplished on the cross. So just think about this on a Sunday morning. On a Sunday evening, throughout the week, as there are so many ministries at this church, you see one another serving. Imperfectly, certainly. Inconsistently, certainly. Oftentimes, we're slow to serve. But every single imperfect, inconsistent act of service is bearing witness to the triumph of Christ at the cross. It is a testimony to the gospel at work in our hearts. As you see one another serve, you understand God has done a work in that person's heart and their act of service however it looks, however imperfect it might be, however much you might want to change it, is testimony to the victory of Christ in their life over sin and over death. When you see people taking care of this campus, when you see people serving you by leading you in singing, when you see many people laboring to instruct And to teach, when you see people serving so practically in so many ways that often go unnoticed, every single act of service is a testimony to the work of Christ in our hearts, the victory that He has accomplished for us over sin and over death. We are no longer in bondage, no longer enslaved to the prince of power of the air, but we have been set gloriously free by Christ through his death at the cross, his resurrection from the grave, and his ascension on high. And as you understand that entire theology brought into view here in this one verse, you can't help but love one another. You can't help but celebrate the gifts that Christ has given. There is no bitterness. There is no jealousy. The differences between us by no means divide All they ever do with a proper biblical theology in view, all they ever do is bring us yet more closer together in love and affection for one another and for the gospel by which we have been saved. The gifts are a reminder of our common experience of saving grace. Additionally, Paul goes on, our gifts, different as they are, differing in measure, are a reminder of Christ's suffering on our behalf. So looking now at verses 9 and 10, Paul offers, as it were, a commentary on the psalm. In verse 8, he quotes from Psalm 68 to explain verse 7. In verse 9 and 10, 
he comments on the psalm quoted in verse 8. And his explanatory comment is, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now there are discussions that center around this verse. It's an explanatory verse, and yet it raises more questions. What does Paul have in mind when he talks about Christ descending? Because you see, his point is, as the psalmist draws attention to the ascending on high, that only makes sense if there was first and foremost a descending. Christ can only ascend if there was prior a descending. What specific descending does Paul have in mind? And some suggest that it is a reference to Christ descending to Hades, to hell, to the underworld. Others say it's a reference to the Spirit descending at the day of Pentecost. But as is so often the case, the most straightforward reading of the text proves to be the best reading of the text. And the ESV is particularly helpful here In its translation, he had also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth. The earth there is an explanation of the lower regions, which in turn explains the descending. Paul is simply using that notion of Christ descending to bring into view the reality of Christ's incarnation. For Christ to ascend on high and distribute gifts, he first had to live amongst us. That was his descent. Christ had everything. Christ had no need to come. Christ had everything in the heavenly places with Father and Spirit in perfect communion from before the foundation of the world. And yet he took it upon himself to descend. That is to say, to be incarnate amongst us, to take on bodily form and to live amongst us. And it is not simply the physical act of descending that validates the ascension, but everything that that entailed. His descension necessarily entails, as Paul references it, it necessarily invokes his whole earthly life. He's living perfectly in accordance with the law. As we sang this morning, he submitted perfectly to the law that he himself authored. Never once transgressing. Never once, even in the inclinations of his heart, working against the perfect will of his heavenly Father, he lived a perfect life. And he did that amidst sinners. And Christ, 
fully man and fully God, then suffered on our behalf. Again, this morning we thought through Isaiah 50 and we saw so vividly that he didn't turn his back on the will of God, but he gave his back so as to be scourged. He didn't hide his face, but he gave his cheek so as to be slapped and struck and his beard to be pulled out and to be spat upon, to be rebuked and to be reviled for your salvation. It is all part and parcel of the gospel narrative. He lived a perfect life and he suffered greatly on the way to the cross. And it didn't end there because as you know, when he arrived at the cross, he opened up his arms and he permitted, as the sovereign over men, he permitted nails to be driven through his hands and there he hung on the cross and died. The most excruciating and painful death, not for his sin, he had none. He died the most shameful criminal's death Because of your sin. That's his dissension. That is what it means when he said he descended. And then, three days later, he rose triumphantly from the grave. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He is not here. And with the empty grave, he appeared to men and he taught his disciples, and then he ascended. Don't forget the ascension. And as he ascended, he gave gifts to men. You see, the gospel narrative accomplished so much more than we could ever contemplate. As Jesus came, descended, and lived a perfect life amongst us and died a sufficient death for our sin and rose victorious and ascended, he accomplished for you a payment for every single sin. The slate is clean tonight. If you are a Christian, there is not one offense recorded against your name in heaven. And there never will be. And the gospel accomplished that for you. And... Christ's descending accomplished for you perfect righteousness before a holy God. Not just that your sins have been paid for, but but now also His righteousness has been credited to you so that right now you stand before a holy God who demands justice in accordance with His character and He looks on you and He says, perfect. This child of mine is perfect. Not because you are, but because Christ's righteousness has been credited to you. In addition, Christ descending bought for you your adoption. Your inclusion into God's family. The holy, righteous judge of the world acquitted you the day that your faith was set on Christ for salvation and he said, come into my family. Call me father. Don't think of me as a distant judge whom you cannot approach that you have no affairs with. Call me father. 
says, you are my son, my daughter. In addition, Christ descending purchased for you the forgiveness of sins, the giving of Christ's righteousness, adoption into God's family, and a glorious and blessed hope. This is not the sum total of our existence. This is just a foretaste. When we gather on a Sunday, it is a taste of heaven. It is exactly that. A foretaste of things to come one day. We will gather around Christ's throne and we will worship Him. In glory for all eternity, the blessed hope that Christians have comes as an outworking of the gospel. So sins forgiven. Righteousness bestowed. Adoption into God's family. A blessed hope. All of this comes by way of Christ descending and ascending. Could there be any more? Ephesians 4 tells us In addition, you have been gifted as an outworking of the gospel. You are here this evening gifted in a particular way to a particular measure which God alone has decided. But you are gifted to serve the church. And that is to be a reminder to you of Christ's suffering on your behalf. As you labor with others, whether it be through very practical acts of service, whether it be through a ministry of encouragement, counseling, discipleship, teaching, administration, hospitality, However God has gifted you, every single gift in the church is a reminder that Christ has died for us. There are so many of you that serve so well. You serve so steadfastly in so many ways. Consistently going above and beyond, and I am so thankful. There is a culture in our church of serving, and it bears witness to the glory of Christ amongst us. There are some who have yet to embrace this privilege. If you're here and you've been here for some time, And you've yet to involve yourself in one way or another, blessing the saints around you by serving. Let me encourage you this evening. Don't hold back. Don't wait. Don't wonder how you might best serve. Just get involved. Speak to someone. There are so many needs, opportunities to serve in this church. It will only bless you, and it will further bring unity to our body. Why? Because it reminds us of our need for one another. 
It reminds us of our common experience of saving grace. It reminds us of Christ's suffering on our behalf. Let's pray together as we close. Father, we praise you tonight. We are truly in awe at the wisdom of your plan for the church. You give us so much. You bring us together through the bond of peace, which we all share. And then even in our differences, your design is that we would be unified. You have given each of us gifts, different gifts in different measure. And that's your perfect design. Help us to see the greatness of your plan in the giving of gifts. May our gifts be a reminder of our need for one another. May our gifts be a reminder of our experience of salvation. And may our gifts be a constant reminder of Christ's suffering on our behalf. Father, I pray that we would all be eager to practice our gifts in this church. And as we consistently serve one another in the way that you have equipped us, would you build the church yet more in our love for you, our love for one another, our love for the gospel by which we have been saved. We pray this in Christ's name.